What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, October 15th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going, buddy? Matt, you know what? I have been better, buddy. I'm a little sick right now, but I'm going to get over this. I promise you. <laughs> How was the wedding? The wedding was fantastic. Can you tell I have like no voice left? I'm like completely <laughs> shot. I had about 42 beers, but um, yeah, I feel great. <laughs> That's what you got to do, man. We are also joined today by recurring guest co-host Dan Walsh. Dan, welcome back. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, so I know we uh, hinted at this last episode, but just to confirm, I did go for that bike ride into New Jersey over the George Washington Bridge last Saturday, and it was awesome. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Beautiful. My legs were feeling it, though. Also, I sold my car, so big things this week. Hey. I, had a, I had a good week. Wow. All right. Uh, before we get into the show, we wanted to take a moment to wish our listeners a very happy belated Indigenous Peoples Day, a day to celebrate the history, traditions, and cultures of those here before colonization. Despite contributing little to greenhouse gas emissions, the United Nations says Indigenous peoples are among the first to face the direct impact of climate change due to their dependence upon and close relationship with the environment and its resources. So let's make sure indigenous peoples have an increased role in our government's solutions to climate change moving forward. And with that, let's get into the show. Today, here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. If you haven't done so already, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That way you can help our show get some visibility. Even if you've already done it, it really helps a lot. So just smash that five-star rating and say, good show, good show, because I think you need like a three-word limit. So good show, good show. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep saying good show, good show, good show, good show. Um, All right. So let's get into our first quick hit of the week. And it is from Katrin Einhorn of the New York Times. And she writes, climate change is devastating coral reefs worldwide, major report says. Due to climate change, 14% of the world's coral reefs have died in the last decade. The sixth status of corals of the world 2020 report explains that coral reefs are among the most vulnerable ecosystems on the planet to human influence. The report was released last Monday, and it talks about how impactful climate change has been on coral reefs, while also saying that it's not too late if we move quickly to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. Some coral reefs can be saved. Where have we heard that before? (laughs) Coral reefs can be found in over 100 countries and support over a quarter of all marine species, despite only making up 0.2% of the seafloor. 
Coral reefs are also estimated to generate $2.7 trillion worth of goods and services, including $36 billion in tourism. So it's not like their only impact is on marine life, which would warrant protecting them on its own. Yeah, that's a that's a value more than the entire company of Apple, which is the biggest company in the world at $2.36 trillion. And according to the report, some species of coral appear to be more resilient to the heat and ocean acidification that come with climate change and lead to coral bleaching. But those corals are usually slower growing and aren't the type of reefs we think of when we hear coral reefs. So not like the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, exactly. But the good news is corals seem to be fairly resilient overall if we work to tackle climate change and reduce pollution. So they said that one of the big issues that corals face actually comes from agricultural runoff and sewage, which both can lead to algal blooms. Yeah, and they said uh, 20%, there has been 20% more algae on the world's coral reefs in 2019 than there was in 2010, and emphasized that algae is a strong indicator of stress on coral reefs. And I know personally that globally, 80% of wastewater and sewage flows back into waterways without being treated, and it's likely disproportionately in the regions where the world's largest coral reefs are. You say 80%? 80%. It's a staggering number, and it's almost unbelievable. And I confirmed it recently, and it's just shocking that that's still the case. But yeah, 80%. That's just, that blows my mind. It is. Wow. I guess, um, you know, people maybe... Uh, kick the bucket down the road in terms of wastewater but as long as you're getting your fresh water that's all right i mean that's my guess i don't i don't know for sure but yeah that it is a staggering number and it's crazy because you go somewhere like uh the united states or europe or like singapore and it's like nearly 100 percent is with clean wastewater treatment so yeah it's a big big number wow yeah and in the article the iucn's uh david obura said Coral reefs are the canary in the coal mine telling us how quickly it can go wrong. Yeah, I guess this is just another kick in the ass telling global leaders to do more. So we will see what the global biodiversity talks that we mentioned in our last episode lead to. And hopefully it's enough protection to fix this trend for corals. Yeah, man, I I haven't been to any coral reefs and I'm really... I want to get to some coral reefs. Yeah, I want to scuba dive before I die. Yeah, I want to scuba dive in some coral reefs. (laughs) I want to contribute to that tourism money before I can. Please, take my money. (laughs) All right, so let's move on here. Our next one is by Andy Rose of CNN, who reports, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments to be expanded by Biden administration. Utah governor says... Speaking of bears ears, Nick's ears perked up when we said bears because he was thinking about his new QB1 Justin Fields. He's so damn good. Oh my God, he's scary good. He's no Aaron Rodgers. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) The Biden administration has chosen to expand the size of both monuments in Utah, which is a reversal of the previous administration's decision to cut bears ears by 85% and the Grand Staircase Escalante by 45%. Bears Ears was established by President Obama, and the Grand Staircase Escalante was established by President Clinton. Both monuments were set up to preserve the culture, history, and natural beauty of the sites, which both have tremendous significance to Native Americans. 
U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland visited the area in April to talk about the issue with state leaders and local tribes. And this is important because she is the first Native American U.S. Cabinet Secretary. Utah's Governor Spencer Cox and Senator Mitt Romney have criticized the decision as federal overreach that will negatively impact the economy, but Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez defended it. He's quoted as saying, Bears Ears is sacred and it deserves to be protected. He also said that the landscape is home to many historical and cultural sites, uh, plants, water, traditional medicines, and teachings for our people. It also provided refuge for our people in times of conflict. Yeah, there's a lot to be said as to why the monument should be protected. And I know Mitt Romney said he would like permanent legislative solutions to the boundaries and ownership, which I do think is very reasonable. But I also think that the expansion is a good thing. And I hope that the permanent solution that Mitt Romney is looking for includes a lot of input from people like Jonathan Nez, whose people have had a large stake in this game for a lot longer than the U.S. government has. Yeah, agreed. Happy to see the... uh the re-expansion of it and uh, I'm always about preserving lands but uh, I was reading this and I I delved into it because I was curious why the previous administration would have reduced it so much and then how quickly it would have came back and it kind of there wasn't really much problems associated with it and from what I saw when the previous administration reduced the monument's land the tribes of the Bear Ears Intertribal Coalition and other environmental groups sued them nearly instantly, arguing that a president does not have the authority to reduce a monument under the Antiquities Act. And that case is still yet to be settled in court even now. But what's more interesting was kind of like, okay, then why did they reduce it in the first place? And in that whole period of time of the last administration, over the four years, there was relatively little interest from oil, gas, or mining companies in developing leases on that land that was now made available for such activities. And from what I saw, it's because the area is what the industry would consider exploratory, quote, wildcat acreage, end quote, or area that doesn't necessarily have a proven oil and gas potential. And many also think that even if there was something there, it'd be too costly for companies to extract the oil, gas, or minerals, or whatever is there. And the expense of transporting it to the market would make it uneconomical, which just to me makes the whole process of reducing it like uh, just not make any sense in the first place if there wasn't really any interest in it to begin with. So basically what you're saying is big oil has lined people's pockets so much that they're now reducing protected land because we haven't proved that there's the no oil. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Cause it, I mean, it, I just, it, like I said, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like it, it seems like it wasn't even a coveted area. And dude, I'm just picturing like, do you, do you remember the old clubhouse that I had back at, at my parents' old house where like we used to play uh, super Nintendo in the back? Oh, yeah. Yep. I'm just picturing like my dad going to like put that first piece of wood in the ground and big oil swooping in and be like, like Hey, 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 You might get some oil down there. (laughs) (laughs) Got to keep this open. (laughs) You cannot do anything here. All right. So next up, Amanda Mole of The Atlantic reports, the nasty logistics of returning your too small pants. 
Yeah, last time we had Dan on, we talked about sustainability in the fashion industry. So just kind of good timing that this article was released when we were planning on having Dan back on. And this article also threw an absolute curveball into the conversation that we had on that June 25th episode. The article starts with the history of the dressing room, which was pretty interesting. Um, The Atlantic, where this is published, always has articles that are really easy to read. And I don't know, I just feel like they're all page turners in the way that they're written. So this transitions from the dressing room to online shopping and the boom that that's experienced over the past decade and even into the decade before that and how it's easier to just order a few sizes of the same item and then return the ones that don't fit rather than just ordering one and if it doesn't fit, returning it or exchanging it for a different size. Yeah, I feel like everyone has done this at some point in their life. Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely guilty of that one. And you well, I was guilty of that one. I'm going to definitely not do this after reading this article. But I don't know. That's also kind of why I try to find one brand I like and order from them. So I know my size and I don't have to be like, ooh, I want one $40 shirt. Let me spend $200 and then get get 160 refunded when four of them don't fit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so general estimates say between one third to one half of all clothing bought in the U.S. is bought online. And that trend escalated last year with pandemic shopping. Yeah, the article pointed out that um, in-person stores have a return rate in the single digits, but online shopping purchases are returned around 15 to 30 percent. It's a high number. Yeah, I for me, I like a brick and mortar store when I'm going to do all my clothing shopping because I just like being able to walk out with it, you know? You try it on, you make yeah. sure it fits, and you yeah. walk out. That's it. Let me let me no. wear it out the store. <laughs> you gotta feel you gotta feel that material. You gotta see how it it fits on the shoulders or whatever it is around the waist. Exactly, it, dude. It makes a difference. Absolutely, it definitely makes a difference. I'm also financially irresponsible, so I'm a way more likely to buy an impulse like shirt, pair of pants, pair of sneakers, whatever. When I'm like, ooh, these are really nice, and they have my size and stuff. No, for sure. Eh. Compared to like letting it sit in the cart mm-hmm. for three days and being like, you know, I don't no. really need this. <laughs> yeah. You have more time to, to like t- talk yourself out of it essentially. Yeah. Whereas like, otherwise you'd be like, I'm in the store. I don't know when I'm going to be back That's here. Exactly ever again. You're like, I'm, not coming I'm never going to be back here. Tomorrow. I know for a fact I won't be in the store. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a store like one block away from your yeah. apartment. You're like, I might, this might close yeah. tomorrow. It's going to be the next pack sun. They might have 90% off everything. <laughs> Um, all right. So anyway, they also point out that um, some retailers tell their customers to do that so that they'll be more confident in their purchases. And then they offer free returns. Yeah. So Dan, circling back, that difference is staggering. And I'm sure what Nick, you just said is a huge reason for why so many people return more often when they purchase things online. Like it's so easy to return stuff that it's almost a who cares if you get it right on the first try? You could always just get that free return. Yeah. U.S. retailers took back over $100 billion in merchandise sold online last year alone. And from there, some of it goes to bulk resellers, some get stripped for parts, and some get sent directly to an incinerator or a landfill. The retail industry has no issue with forward logistics, which is the process of getting goods to their end users. So for that, you can think of buying from an online store who then packages it and then the postal service picks it up and then it gets delivered to you. That's forward logistics. Reverse logistics is where it gets tricky. The item has to be examined to make sure it's the correct item being returned and that you didn't just, you know, 
buy a computer and then buy a cheaper one on Amazon and then try to return that cheaper one for full price back to Lenovo or whoever. No free ads. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Or they also have to check whether it's been used or whether it's been worn, whether it still works, if it's clean, if there's salvageable parts. So there's this whole process that opens up once you get into the return game. And each of these questions can be answered, but it takes time to figure them out. And sometimes those answers are a little ambiguous. So at the end of the day, the things you return are most likely not sent back and then purchased by a new owner, which is what I thought happened. It's like, hey, I didn't end up liking this shirt. I'm going to return it. Somebody else is going to buy it. That's not usually what happens. Returns also have a high cost to retailers. An online return typically costs a seller between $10 and $20 before the cost of shipping is factored in. Yeah, and they say here that it's tough to estimate just how much return merchandise is thrown away because of shipping overseas. And developing nations end up with thousands of pounds of American clothes, and a lot of retailers don't even keep track of how much gets thrown away once it's off their books. Yeah, and they didn't mention this in the article, but... What you said just kind of reminds me of the Super Bowl shirts that get made for the losing team and how those just get sent overseas like right after the game. Yeah, why can't they just like be way less wasteful and just have the shirts printed after the game? Uh, because then Roger Goodell would miss that photo op of the team hoisting a trophy. Like if they're just in their jerseys <laughs> hosting the Lombardi trophy, how are people going to know that they just won that trophy? <laughs> <laughs> It's not enough that there's confetti in the background and that they're all cheering. <laughs> and that they're smiling. I need visual, yeah, I need visual confirmation via, with shirts. Via a t-shirt. Yes. yes. <laughs> Super Bowl champs. Um, so the thing that really got me in this article is when they brought up the usual questions of, don't lots of people in the U.S. need winter coats and smartphones and other crucial tools of everyday life that they can't afford? Wouldn't providing those things be good PR for retailers? Wouldn't it be a tax write-off at the very least? Which are all questions that the author brought up. And they also say that donations would be the best move morally, but companies have little incentive to act morally. There's basically no reason for them to be a good company full of good people, like just for the sake of being a good person. So why would they do that? Yeah, it's the uh, it's the um, it's the grocery cart dilemma. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't know that one. So the the grocery cart dilemma basically says like there's no incentive for you to bring it back because someone's going to come collect it anyway. Yeah. But it's the true measure of a good gotcha. person to okay. just okay. bring the cart back because it takes a little bit out of your day, maybe yeah. what twenty seconds. But it makes it so much easier for the person whose job it is to collect those carts if everyone just returns it to the cart corrals. Exactly. Oh, for sure, for sure. It's just like a moral test, pretty much. Yeah. Overall, I mean, this article reminds me of, and I would say my girlfriend does a great job in ordering from online stores, especially those that she likes that are from like London, or she has one I know that is based in Australia, and I know that they offer free returns. And she'll, like, build up her shopping cart and get, like, ten things so she's not getting it shipped, like, one thing after another thing. But when she gets it and say she doesn't like one thing, like, they offer free returns and they ship it all the way back. And it's just, like, conceptually doesn't make much sense to me how, yeah, that's economical for the brand 
to get it shipped from the United States all the way back to Australia for free. And then, yeah, I'm curious, what do they do with it? And, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're just losing money at that point. That's like a lot. (laughs) Like that's a, that's a lot. Think about a plane ride to, to Australia. That's like 18 hours or something. I've just like traveled. I don't know. It's wild. And then, um, another thing it reminded me of is for Vala Alta, like we just refund people the money. We don't even have them ship it back, but that's kind of because the product is a little intimate or it could be intimate. And, um, it's not so, so, so costly to us that we need it back. Like we're not selling laptops where you just can't not have that be shipped back and then we, we would be reselling it. So it's doable. So I guess, I don't know. I, I am happy that it's not a problem that I have to deal with or we have to deal with. Yeah, Dan, and that's a really good point um, about how, you know, for for you, you just eat that cost and tell people do whatever you want with it. I think they might have mentioned it in this article. If not, it was a different one that I was reading just for some different talking points to bring in. But there's a big push by a lot of companies to just say, hey, if you don't like it, we'll give you your money back and then you could do whatever you want with it. And hopefully that means donating it, especially for clothes. Like there's a lot of people out there who are struggling and need affordable clothing. Especially if you're going to get it shipped back to the company and you're hoping the company is going to donate it. It's almost just like the same end goal with the extra shipment involved. But then you are taking on the responsibility as the customer to have to take that to the donation center yourself. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe that's a push in the right direction because I think we all have a couple items in our closets that we haven't worn in three years and we're holding on to it for the, oh, maybe I'll wear this one day. You're not going to. I'm not going yeah. to. I, I need to go donate <laughs> some clothes. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, and then I'll bring up one last point that this article reminds me of in relation to Vala Alta. And it's that when we get the handkerchiefs, there's a small percentage of which that are just imperfect and we don't want to sell because, you know, we we deliver the quality stuff and you just don't want, you can't be delivering stuff that is imperfect. And then we're just kind of left with them as like, okay, what do I do with them? And I just feel like this topic isn't talked about enough. It's like the Super Bowl shirts. Like companies don't really talk about what they do with their damaged goods. And as a new company uh, business owner, you're just like, what do I do with this? And now I just have a bunch of handkerchiefs that are like, whatever, like the stitching is a little crooked or something. And I'm just trying to dish it off to you guys or my friends or anyone, my brother's friends. Like, Hey, you need some handkerchiefs or something, but it's only going to build up over time. And so (laughs) maybe I'll take it to a a donation center. And so, yeah. So if we're going to pull anything away from this article, I would say, let's just try and close in the store before buying them online. And then, you know what? Maybe you get that pair of pants hemmed instead of returning it to buy the same pair with a little bit shorter legs. You know what? That's a really good point. And not to toot my own horn, but uh, hip-hop air horn, I'm going to toot it. Uh, I actually went in... <laughs> yeah, thank you. I actually went into a store uh, this weekend. Not going to say which one, but I needed some new pants. Tried them on, figured out what size I need. That way I can go get the color that I want without, you know, I was between sizes and now I'm not. So boom, cutting down my carbon footprint. Hell yeah, Maddie. One step in the right direction, pal. (laughs) All right. So last one is from Atmos and it is titled COP26 Climate Summit or Super Spreader Event by Yesenia Fuentes. 
Yeah, so right now, the IPCC and climate activists around the world are telling us that we need stronger goals to mitigate climate change, and we need more concrete policies to adapt to its impacts. At the same time, the COVID-19 pandemic and global vaccine inequality continue to put the global South at risk. Now, when we say the global South, that doesn't refer to geography and just the Southern Hemisphere. It's referring to socioeconomics and politics of the world. So the global South is made up of Africa, Latin America, and developing areas of Asia, including the Middle East. The global North being the industrialized nations, you know, the US, Canada, Europe, etc. Some Pacific Island nations have recorded zero cases of COVID-19, and the leaders of these nations now face the possibility that they could come in contact with the virus at this upcoming UN climate talks in COP26 and then they would bring that back to their communities. The talks are set in Glasgow, Scotland, where most of Scotland's thousands of ongoing cases are located. Scotland has the highest infection rate in the UK. So the UK is requiring mandatory quarantine periods for COP26 attendees and free vaccines. But this makes planning the trip a longer process if you're going to have to quarantine before you go. And then if you're going back to a community that hasn't been exposed to the virus very much, you're probably going to want to quarantine as soon as you get home, too. Yesenia Fuenes is the climate director at Atmos, and she talks to climate justice activists as part of this article and says that many folks feel they must attend COP26. It's worth the potential COVID-19 risk because the alternative, going unheard, might be even deadlier for their nations. Chief Ninawa Hunikui of the Hunikui people in the Brazilian Amazon faces the immense threats that climate change and deforestation pose for his people. So he travels every year to the UN Climate Summit and will be traveling to COP26. He also plans to talk about Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro's violence against indigenous people. Luckily, he is vaccinated and most of his community is vaccinated too, so his choice might be a little bit easier than the leaders in similar positions without vaccine prevalence at home. Many climate organizers have called on the UK to postpone the conference, but that seems unlikely now because, frankly, the talks are so close, we're less than a month away, and they're also very necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then another person attending is uh, Jaron Brown from the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance. And she says, what's at stake here is the survival of all humanity, but most significantly, the survival of those on the front lines. We cannot afford to have industries and nation states pretending to be taking climate action and oftentimes even causing more harm. Dude, could you imagine being faced with, you know, I could get sick and bring this virus back to my community, but if I can't go, then the global leaders might just plant a few extra trees and call it a day. It's no wonder many at-risk leaders feel they need to be there. Yeah, 100%. Like, if you're one of those nations that is, you know, going to be affected super soon by the sea level rise, you I feel like you'd have to do pretty much anything in order to get yourself to COP26 and, and voice your case. Yeah, and that's actually kind of what... Um, Sophie Ogatu of the World March of Women in Kenya said, you know, she's more scared of the future that her continent faces from climate change than she is of COVID. And her people are still being greatly impacted by the virus. Like she wants wealthier nations to pay their fair share of the climate cost. There are also plenty of people choosing to skip COP26 because of the risk that it poses. 
Brandon Wu, the director of policy and campaign for Action Aid USA, is skipping and says it's insane to hold a massive event during the pandemic. He says that he has unvaccinated children at home, so he can't take the risk in attending. Yeah, I understand that, too. Um, And I guess he also recognized that this is the only space where some people in the global south can voice their issues and let other world uh, leaders know what they need. Uh, so he un- he does understand that there's a need for action and this could be the place to do it. Yeah. And, you know, he's not alone in those concerns. Tamara Tolas O'Laughlin, who's the president and CEO of the Environmental Grantmakers Association, says that some people might feel the need to go, but she just can't support attending herself. And it's definitely a tricky situation. And I don't think we're here to say whether or not we would attend to facing these decisions. And You know, I'm just hopeful that the organizers will find a way to make COP26 as safe as possible for all attendees. Yeah, even if it takes literally putting everyone inside their own little bubble for the day (laughs) (laughs) or for the week. Um, All right. So, yeah, this article actually ends with a quote from Chief Nanawa that kind of sums it up the best. They don't have time to worry about a virus when another virus, greed, is threatening to exterminate them back home. Jeez, that is just impactful. Um, There's also a bunch of other leaders featured in this story, so definitely check it out to hear from some other people and hear some other perspectives that we didn't talk about here. Yeah, absolutely. Go check it out, guys. All right. I think now is a pretty good time to take a break, Maddie. What do you say? Let's do it. When we get back, fun conversation that's going to get you riled up and ready to go uh, protest some oil companies. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to light a fire under your ass after the break. Stay tuned. So Matt, this weekend I was obviously at my uh, sister's wedding and you know, I'm not going to lie, when you were not on the dance floor, getting the blood pumping, getting your body moving, it got a little chilly. And, you know, every time I was, you know, sitting at the bar waiting for a drink, I'd, I'd get like a little bit of a nose, you know, a little bit of a nose drip. Oh, that crisp October air must have been hitting you perfectly where, you know, you're still sweating from dancing and then you feel that drip coming down. You're like, wait a second, that's not sweat. Oh, and Matt, do you think I'm going to take my suit that I just bought? My freaking beautiful suit that I bought and I'm going to wipe my sleeve you are not a sleeve guy. We have we have established you are not a sleeve guy. Matt, I'm just not a sleeve guy. That's not my game. I trust one thing and one thing only, and that is Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co with code TPT. New website, valaalta.co. Forget the M. Same website, new domain name.
today, folks. Today we'll be talking about the history of climate change misinformation and how it relates to other misinformation campaigns and Google and YouTube's latest decision on addressing it. Advertising misinformation is nothing new, and one of the big ones that comes to mind for me when I think of this is big tobacco. Yeah, e-cigarettes do the same thing now. Like for years they had been saying, you know, they only contain water vapor, they're harmless, and it completely downplayed how addictive they actually were. Exactly. They just straight up said, you know, these aren't bad for you instead of saying they're not good for you, but they're less bad for you than cigarettes. So anyway, big tobacco spread lies for years about the dangers of smoking and tried to make it seem like, you know, it was good for your lungs to get that kind of smoky expansion. Dan, one of your favorite TV shows of all time is Mad Men. So I want you to walk us through some of the strategies that they talk about in the show. And, you know, it is a fictional show, but there's definitely some truth to the historical context in it. So we figured, you know, you're a a good resource here. Yeah, definitely. They do a phenomenal job. And I went back and watched a couple clips and it is even better than I remember. But yeah, it's just exactly what you would imagine. Just like a bunch of old white dudes in the 50s in their classic suit smoking cigarettes in the inside in the meeting room with the cigarette executives pitching uh advertising ideas but and it, it was at that point that they're kind of confronted with like uh the public health claims of cigarettes being bad and they're like okay so how are we going to deal with this and the cigarette executives are talking about creating an internal research group to dispute the public health claims and like the ad guys are coming up with slogans like so what if cigarettes are dangerous the world is dangerous that kind of stuff <laughs> but uh, I, I don't want to spoil anything but they ended up making the right move in the end it's, it's really good I, it's just like a great show that's uh you know I want us to become the bad boys of podcasting now it's like <laughs> so what if podcasts are dangerous the world is dangerous <laughs> the world is dangerous <laughs> uh, no that's that's definitely a good one that's a really good example and another one that I think of a lot with misinformation is big oil and specifically ExxonMobil in this case because we mentioned this on the show before I forget what episode but ExxonMobil knew about greenhouse gases and how they were impacting climate change in 1977. That became a public issue 11 years later. So Exxon has since spent decades refusing to acknowledge climate change and over $30 million promoting misinformation about the climate crisis. And it just always makes me wonder, you know, what society would have been like had we started fighting climate change 40 years ago. Half of the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere have been released since 1988. So, I mean, we could be in a vastly different position right now if Exxon executives had a conscience back in the day instead of just being like, we're making a lot of money. So uh, now we're just we're not going to do anything about this one. (laughs) So Big Oil's trick is always to promote pseudoscience and basically just enough misinformation to make you unsure about the realities of climate change and that reality is that 97% of climate scientists agree that it's happening and it's human caused. But big oil wants to make sure that you are just unsure enough to have questions about the data because that's a lot easier than convincing you that the data itself is wrong, especially here where the data is right. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I think about this and it's just like if they knew then whatever it was, 1977, and they pumped those 30 million into like uh, 
research and development for future renewable energies. You know, from a business standpoint, you're going to be making more money. They would be killing it right now in terms of like solar energy or wind turbines or anything. And now they're probably like, holy heck, maybe this is right. And now they're scrambling to like make any kind of green energy for themselves because they're the company is going to be out of business if it doesn't make the transition so it's like they've put themselves in a worse position to make this transition by denying it and making it longer and pouring more money into it i don't know yeah no i I definitely agree with you there but there's something i want to circle back to that you said about you know their their executives being like maybe this is right i think it's more malicious than that like i think they knew it was right at the time like i don't don't think anyone was going to read that report that was handed to them in 1977 with all this data backing it up and say, huh, no, this is wrong. And just like toss it out. Like they probably were like at the very least, huh, this could get bad for us. Oh, for sure. Oh, well. And now like, you're right. The writing is on the wall and they're, they're either going to have to transition to renewables or sink their ship. And Mm -hmm. you know, I, whatever happens, we're either going to get more renewable energy from those companies that traditionally have have shied away from it or yeah. those companies are going to sink and either way that's kind of a win-win in my book sorry exxon for sure poor leadership by them and uh adapt or die literally yeah, yeah. and now they're scrambling and i feel like the stuff that i do see coming out of uh oil companies it's almost just like that whole situation never happened and i feel like you know if you played it right from the start you would have maybe some more consumer sentiment. But now that you're like, you know, they did run those like misinformation campaigns and now they're kind of like being all green and stuff. And we're going to go into like the greenwashing where it's like you lose all credibility. It's just like it's zero. It's like gone. Terrible. Good points, Dan. And, you know, you brought up greenwashing. So let's get right into it. That's kind of this next big trend that we've seen in advertising. And it was the first time greenwashing was ever coined was in like the 1950s. I, I think it said in the article I was reading, but it really got popular through Chevron's Tilted People Do campaign, which showed Chevron employees protecting cute animals pretty much. They actually won an FE advertising award in 1990 for this campaign, and it would lead you to believe that Chevron was protecting wildlife if you ignore the fact that big oil simply cannot protect the environment due to the nature of its business. So greenwashing is another example of basically muddying the waters. That way consumers don't realize the truth of certain companies' environmental records, which is something that's become increasingly important for consumers. A 2015 Nielsen poll showed that 66% of global consumers are willing to pay more for environmentally sustainable products, and that number is 72% among millennials. I would also guess that those numbers have both risen over the past six years since that poll was released because now, I mean, you see it everywhere, how big environmental sustainability is. It's like the hot topic right now, which Mm -hmm. I love. It's great, except in the fact that sometimes it's not genuine. Oh, for sure. Yeah. This is definitely something that irks me, like just like going around in my daily life, whether it's like uh, the packaging of products or like the actual advertisements of projects uh, of products but when I do see the claims I get quite investigative at, because I have like a high bar in evaluating their validity especially like doing Valo Alta and like really really delving into like the 
scientific literature of like, is this actually clean or is this just what I want to say or whatever? But yeah, I feel like a lot of the times if you delve into it, like just a step further, there isn't much substance behind the claims that a lot of companies make about their products being eco-friendly. And I feel as someone who's a little bit better at understanding environmental science and like what studies would be concluding, it's kind of like a responsibility of mine and people with that skill set to to back up these claims, kind of like similarly to like uh, supplements with like medical claims associated with supplements. And I feel like the FDA is like always on them for like being like, this is not FDA approved. These claims may be wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's just become such a widespread thing because most people maybe don't take that extra step or they aren't too interested in the details behind it or they just choose to believe it because overall I feel like more companies are kind of trying to make a step towards the greener direction but from my experience I think that companies should be doing more on this end and because just a lot of the time I don't really see enough substance behind their claims but when I do come across companies that go that extra mile and you know cite sources and even do their own independent research on their products and life cycle analysis and all that stuff you really i personally gain a lot of respect for those kind of companies yeah i think we need to start like an environmental claims commission and dan you're head Mm -hmm. of the board you're just like nope they're (laughs) full of shit nope these guys are fake (laughs) <laughs> no way. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's definitely people who, who should do that. I, at least even make it an independent thing, like an independent investigation. Yeah, exactly. It, it's Ooh, exactly what you were yeah. saying with the FDA. Like, we just need someone who's yeah. going to be, I don't know, maybe like the Better Business Bureau or something like that. Maybe they yeah. could like... No, yeah. there's definitely room for <laughs> it. Maybe there's like someone that. out there. Maybe there's people out there looking to start this or, or something. I don't know. Yeah, Dan. So something you said about like doing our own investigations and research about these claims that companies are making about their own sustainability reminds me of something that I forget if we talked about it on the show or not, but Kaylee was telling me she read this article. And when Starbucks a couple of years ago transitioned to those lids that um, you don't need a straw for them, you can just kind of like sip out of them. The big sustainability environmentalism impact was, uh, you know, hey, you don't need to use a straw with our new lids, but they were using more plastic to produce those lids than if they just would have used their regular lids with straws. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so it's just kind of like, you know, six in one hand, half dozen of the other, or whatever that phrase is that I definitely just botched. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's just, that's kind of like the greenwashing thing where it's like, it's believable enough, like no one's really going to question that, kind of, because it, like, uh, observationally, you would think that that is reducing the waste or reducing the plastic use but then yeah when you see something like that it's like whoa and it, it could be it could be reducing it because it could it's, be 100% you know yeah. one item it's just one lid that is a little bit more plastic than the you know lid and straw the combination but, you know with two items it might be more likely for that to end up getting out of a landfill and getting into the waterways and impacting marine life compared to just the one item but all i can say for certain is that they're using more plastic to create these than they would be if they just, you know, went with the regular lid and a paper straw or reusable straws. So, 
Wouldn't have thought. So last week we got some good news related to all of this. Google and YouTube will stop allowing ads with false claims about climate change on their platforms. Daisuke Wakabayashi and Tiffany Sue of the New York Times wrote about this on October 7th, and they state that the decision means websites and YouTube creators cannot earn advertising money through Google for content that, quote, contradicts well-established scientific consensus around the existence and causes of climate change, end quote. The sites will also ban ads that allow for these kind of views. So for anyone out there who's like, hey, what about freedom of speech? Beach. Here is your brief reminder that Google and YouTube are private companies and can ban people from saying whatever they want since you agree to use their platforms and therefore you agree to their terms of service. I have no problem when companies ban people from lying about well-established science. Like that's not a freedom of speech issue. That's just, you know, banning misinformation. Yeah, exactly. And Google's ad team said uh, in recent years, We've heard directly from a growing number of our advertising and publisher partners who've expressed concerns about ads that run alongside or promote inaccurate claims about climate change. So I'm just realizing now that I kind of misread this article because I was just thinking that this was advertising related, but it's also has to do with like websites that just publish content, which I feel like is Mm -hmm. a lot more impactful. I totally miss that because I'm also I'm thinking like how many people are like advertising climate denying things but whereas i think that there's a lot more people maybe posting stuff on the internet that are climate denying climate change denying blog posts or whatever and then monetizing those blog posts through ads on that page wow that is that's big that's big yeah yeah, yeah. no this is huge this is huge that's news big. and you know those those websites aren't getting taken down yeah um it's just you're not going to be able to get there through Google and give money. Through yeah, they're Google not going to, to receive sites. like revenue like from that. Right. Cool. So you know, it's not like a full blown. You can't post anything anymore um, that says that it's cold outside, the climate isn't warming. <laughs> like you can still do that. It's just you can't collect your uh, twenty five cents per view from YouTube for it. <laughs> yeah, you just have to go to the Twitter like the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, if you're ever on the fence about making your voice heard and writing to people in power, here is why we do it. Enough people expressed concerns through calls, letters, emails, or through their purchasing or avoiding certain products that advertisers ended up reaching out to Google to get this done. Like, this comes back to activism and writing to your senators and your congresspeople and saying, hey, this is important to us. So make your voice heard always. Yeah, for sure. The article also says that Facebook doesn't have a policy banning ads denying climate change. That is because Facebook only ever acts in the best interest of its own bottom line. And that is evident from the latest Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hogan, who basically said that Facebook prioritizes making more money over making a better platform that will have a positive impact on society. Yeah, from my um, experience running Facebook ads, I just know that Facebook is hyper aggressive in removing ads, anything that's associated with like political or social remarks of claims of any type, they're kind of like very jumpy to, to put a clamor on those ads. And I know you'd have to like appeal to them if they do reject them to, to get permission and you have to provide your own identification. They send like a letter to your house 
and stuff. So they they try to do stuff, but I would say they might even be um, unintelligently kind of just putting a stop on anything that has social or political connotations without the uh, specific checking of the box that claims that these ads are associated with social and political claims, which obviously no consumer product company kind of wants to do, rather than like something like a NGO or something would be advertising with a claim of that sort. So yeah, I, I personally don't really love Facebook ads. And I, I think that Google and YouTube's move here will have a much bigger impact than anything Facebook's done. Yeah, agreed. And I think part of the big thing is like that revelation that you had earlier where, you know, they're not going to allow for monetization of Mm -hmm. people who are getting, you know, their claim to fame from just coming out and being like, hey, I read one thing and now I'm going to make a YouTube video. That is true. I didn't even think about that. It's it's going to prevent the rise of misinformation. The headline, the headline clickers, you know, it's like, like I'm not gonna Definitely. I'm not gonna shout out people by name because I don't want to give them the press that look they don't need more they shouldn't have what they already have but there's plenty of YouTube content creators who they'll log in and be like here's why this is fake today and it's like this climate change video that shows you know it's colder in 2020 than it was in 2018 but then you look at the trend and it's like the graph itself is going up steadily since 1900. So even if one year was a little colder than it was a year ago, like it doesn't mean the trend is any different. So that's the sort of stuff that they're going to be able to clamp down on now. And that's going to get people who are likely to believe those sort of platforms to not have access to it. Yeah. Or, or the people who just do it for the attention or for the click and then the hopeful ad revenue that comes from the click. So that, that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to say about how um, it kind of ties into something we were talking about before with greenwashing, where as a user of like Facebook and Instagram, I've never seen any climate change denying ads on Facebook or Instagram, but I've seen some greenwashy types of ads on the platform. And from what I've seen, if you go into the comments on those uh, ads, the public does not typically respond well to them. They are very unhappy when companies are making claims about eco-friendliness without the studies or or whatever to back it up and i it it makes me happy to see when i click on the comments of those ads and people are very well versed certain people are very well versed on the subjects and they hold companies accountable to the to the claims not everyone using facebook is bad <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, no. dan i do want to go back to something you said there though you said that you've never seen any climate denying ads like in your own user experience i haven't without seeking them out because look i mean like part of doing this show is also understanding dissenters and you know the, the mm-hmm. opposite side of thinking i think part of the reason that you don't see those climate change denying ah, ads you're right. is they because know too of much about me. Yeah, no, no it's, it's your much. algorithm. Like we all, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My algorithm. yeah. Like right. for, for anyone who's not familiar, check out the social dilemma. It's, it's a documentary on how Facebook basically engineers the site individually to you to show you things that are more likely to keep you on the site. So they find things you agree with and then hammer those in and you're not going to get like, I'm not going to go on and get an advertiser for like, Hey Matt, 
come buy this new diesel truck because honestly, like they probably see what I like and they see the posts that I respond to and they're like, huh, okay, so he's more likely to go buy this new sustainable sweater from Patagonia or whatever. Like those are the ads that I'm getting. And I'm sure that you're getting similar things where it's things you're interested in, not yeah, wow. climate change denial. That's funny. Cause I got a Dodge Ram 1500 ad the other day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. V8. <laughs> All right. So getting back to the article a bit, the authors compare this to how advertising agencies shifted away from big tobacco and it looks like fossil fuels are going to be next up on this list. So they point out how The Guardian, which is one of the sources we use often here on TPT, and several other publications have either limited or stopped accepting fossil fuel ads. The New York Times, where this article is published, does not allow oil or gas companies to sponsor its climate newsletter, its climate summit, or its podcast, The Daily. But the Times does allow the industry to advertise elsewhere. So I'm a little torn there. Um, to be honest, I'm always a sucker for some journalistic integrity. So I appreciate them calling out the Times accepting ads from big oil. And I would argue that it's almost worse to allow for ads elsewhere in the newspaper because the people who are reading the Climate Forward newsletter or attending the Climate Summit are probably less likely to support big oil. But the people who see those ads in the economics section, for example, they might still invest in big oil stocks after seeing an ad. So those are the areas where I think a bigger difference could be made by just not allowing for those ads at all in the New York Times. Yeah, I think to sum it all up, we just need something like Nick was recommending before of people who are making climate and uh, environmental related advertisements to make sure that they are not providing misinformation or just like not accurately reflecting what the product or company does. And like Nick said, it's kind of like what the FDA does for supplements or food related products. But yeah, nothing exists of the like for environmental related claims. But maybe that would be a good, good thing. Yeah, I feel like this has to be on someone's horizon. Like someone is definitely working on this right now. Yeah. Um, it's only getting worse. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's only getting worse. And like, you know, it, it only will take a couple more companies that are taking advantage of this like eco boom, mm -hmm. if you will, um, mm -hmm. for, I think, you know, someone to say, all right, we got to start policing this stuff because this is getting like out of hand. I have two closing thoughts. And the first is um, I will be honest with the two of you. I am terrified that this organization is out there and the three of us are just like drawing a blank. And then we're going to be like, oh, my God, <laughs> like we just <laughs> forgot about this organization. But here's the TPT difference. You guys, you listeners get our real authentic selves and we're not going to do the research. We're not going to edit it in and pretend <laughs> that we knew better because you know what? Yeah, I don't know. We don't, don't know, know better or we know better and we are just all forgetting. Yeah. So. You know what? We'll exactly. look it up after the show. Uh, and if you are curious about this this thing, then look it up after the show because that's what we're going to do. My second <laughs> and final closing thought is if the organization does not exist, I know what we're naming it because every governmental organization needs an acronym. It's the Environmental Accountability Team. And they're just going to be eating up those oil and gas eat, companies, baby. Eat, <laughs> eat, eat, eat. 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 <laughs> 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 That's All right. Great.
That'll do it for this week's episode of The Planet Today. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio for some quick hits before we air my interview with Kelly Jacobs to talk about managed retreat and more. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you could share the show with a friend. You know we love our listeners, but we also love getting new listeners. So help us out and we'll keep giving you that sweet, sweet content that you crave. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want us to answer, you can send them in on Twitter, Instagram, email, whatever. If you see a story you want us to cover, send it to us. If you have a guest, you know we love doing these interviews. So reach out to us with some cool guests. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on another service, Apple's going to help the show grow the most. So we appreciate you listening wherever you do listen, but switch over to that Apple app real quick and just smash five stars. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. We were also joined today by our good friend Dan Walsh, who helped write this episode. Dan, where can people keep up with you and the rest of the Vala Alta team? You can keep up with us at valaalta.co. Valaalta.com will also get you there, but we just made the change to valaalta.co. You could subscribe to our newsletter and uh, on Instagram at Vala underscore Alta. And then we got a side project going at eat.gov. Eat.gov, <laughs> if you're looking for Oh, that's going to be an electric factory. Uh, <laughs> eat.gov. <laughs> go to some random government agency. I'm like, why did we get so many new clicks? <laughs> Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. <laughs>